You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. If you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses or sorry, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. You know, there is a, a lot um, that we see, trends that we see in, uh, in uh, the evangelical church of, uh, of not really looking to doctrine. You know, there are those who are thought of, you know, you, you, you teach doctrine, we, we teach life application. Uh, when I hear things like that, I always wonder, well, if you don't teach doctrine, what are you applying to life? <laughs> um, but it's the idea, too, of that, one, you know, there, there, there's, we want to avoid controversy. We want to avoid what's, what's tough and what, what people may wrestle over and disagree with. And also, too, we, we, want, to, uh, we want to stir up the people to, to, to know what they, they can get fixed in their lives. And so instead of doctrine, we want to teach steps on uh, how to improve your marriage and get out of debt and, 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 and you know, all those other kinds of things. And really, there is doctrine being taught there in truth. Um, but there's an avoidance of things, and, and, and so to also make it, what, what do people want to hear? Uh, what will draw them in? And we fail to recognize that, that it's even in those areas of life that we want to address and, and that we know people struggle with and they need answers to these things. Well, well, answers are in doctrine. We have to recognize the importance of doctrine. I mean, we think about marriage. What's the go-to passage on marriage? Ephesians 5, right? Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. But what's Paul talking about through that section? At the very end, when you get to verse 32, he says, I'm talking about the church. Doctrine addresses these things as we learn and we grow and understand who God is and, and what the church is and, and we, we grow in our knowledge of the gospel and understanding of, uh, of what it really means to say, I'm a wretched sinner that cannot save myself and I need a savior. So we need to understand the importance of doctrine. And if we understand the importance of doctrine, we're going to understand the importance of, of making sure that we have true and sound doctrine. And that we, we don't allow for what is contrary to what Scripture teaches to worm its way into the church. See, and some say they want to stay away from doctrine because doctrine divides. Well, I loved one pastor's response to that. Yes, doctrine does divide. It divides error from truth. And that's absolutely correct. When we see the importance of knowing true doctrine, what is right, we understand the importance of, of not allowing what is false to come in. And two, as we, we think of the fact that we're looking to have elders here at the church, that we, we believe it's right from Scripture and what Scripture teaches that, that there should be a plurality of elders leading the church. And we again think of what kind of person uh, that should be fulfilling those roles. And it's part of why we're going through First Timothy. Well, it makes me think of what John Calvin said. 
said the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. But again, Scott, that, that divides. There's, we, there's people who disagree, and, and, and so how can we have true unity with something that may divide people? But, but the thing is, that that's, it's a misunderstanding completely. It's a misunderstanding of unity in the church and what the unity is called for because we can't have true biblical unity apart from what is true. We must stand on the truth, but, but there are those who say, no, we have to make unity the priority above everything else. Is that what Jesus did? Is that what he calls his church to? Uh, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36? Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Uh, those relationships that are supposed to be the most knitted together will be divided because of Christ, because of who he truly is. So we have to understand that. We have to understand and see the importance of true doctrine in the church, of true teaching, of standing on the truth of God's word. That that is where true unity is found. And, and any search for unity or peace outside of that is really just a false peace, a false unity. And so our stand must be, as Martin Luther said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. That must be where we stand. I think we see that as we, we look to our text for this morning. As we see Paul urge Timothy to stay there in Ephesus to command certain ones to stop teaching different doctrines. Now, last week, uh, we had the introduction to our series, and we discussed that this was written by the Apostle Paul, who uh, was traveling with Timothy, or maybe he met Timothy there at Ephesus uh, on his fourth uh, missionary journey while he was on his way to Macedonia. And there in Ephesus, false teachers, uh, these unqualified leaders, had pretty much taken over the church. And we'll see when we come to chapter 1, verse 20, uh, that it would seem that Paul began to confront and, and work uh, to stop this, but he had to move on to Macedonia, and so he left Timothy there to continue to address the false teachers and those unqualified leaders. And then we see, as, as Paul had moved on, he, he eventually then writes back to Timothy, Hey, Timothy, those orders I gave you when I left you there in Ephesus, they, they still hold true. This is what you're to be doing. And, and now I'm writing you, too, that you would continue to do this and that you would know what the conduct of God's church should be. I'm, I'm planning to get to you, but if I can't, then I'm writing this so you know. So Timothy's there in, in Ephesus to confront the false teaching and those false teachers. And so now uh, we begin to get into the body of this letter. And so if you would, read with me chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, 
nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to, te to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So again, as we, we start off here, getting into the body of the text, uh, we see something here that uh, is missing. Actually, as you look at pretty much all of Paul's letters, uh, except for his letter to the Galatians and his letter to Titus, and so then two here in 1 Timothy, we see that what's missing is uh, starting off the body of the letter with a word of thanksgiving or a word of prayer. Instead, he, he jumps right into the issue at hand. And Andreas Kostenberger, he suggests that this demonstrates the urgency of the matter. Paul had to get right to the point. And we see that right from the start, the purpose, again, that Paul had left Timothy there in Ephesus was that so he would charge or that he would command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, any different doctrine or any other doctrine or any heretical doctrine, uh, whatever it was that would stand in contrast to what was right, what was sound doctrine. We see there in verse 3, Paul urged Timothy, he exhorted Timothy to stay in Ephesus to fulfill that task. So it would seem that if Paul had to urge him to stay there in Ephesus, if he had to exhort him, that then maybe Timothy didn't really want to stay there in Ephesus. That he wanted to go along with Paul on to Macedonia, but Paul's like, no, no, you, you need to stay. You need to address and, and deal with the false teaching that's here at this church. You know, sometimes the task before us uh, is not what we would want it to be. Sometimes church ministry isn't as, as smooth or as enjoyable as we would want it to be. Sometimes we need to wrestle with one another, and sometimes we need to engage in battles for the truth and the purity of the church. Sometimes tradition and scripture are in contradiction to one another, and then to bring about those chains can come at a cost. So sometimes... We'd rather just go on to Macedonia than to stay and deal with the issues that are right here in the church. But sometimes we need to stay and take up the battle. Sometimes we need to stay and, and do our part, recognizing that there is a commitment here that God, by his providence, has put us here where we're at. And so we remain committed and being committed to the truth where we're at. Sometimes that looks like a battle. Sometimes that looks like confrontation. As we see, Timothy had to go into confrontation for the sake of true doctrine. Sometimes, though, there, there is a time to leave, and, and we need to pray for wisdom and when that is, and, um, and seek God in all of those things, and seek wise counsel. Because we have to understand uh, that there is a commitment to the church and to true doctrine and to seeing that true doctrine is preserved in the church. 
And so Timothy had to finish the work that him and Paul had begun there before Paul went on to Macedonia. And we see Paul said that Timothy was to command. And the word here for command, or as the the English Standard Version has it, to charge, uh, this word is a military word. It's a military command. If a soldier receives an orders, receives a command from a a higher-ranking officer, uh, that command then from that officer is expected to be followed, right? Good things are not going to happen for the soldier who does not follow the commands that are given to him, to say the least. It's expected that he's going to do what he has been commanded. And so this is, again, the same word here, this, this military command. He is to command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Because they were not to teach anything that was contrary to what the Ephesians had received, to what they had already been taught. And the Apostle Paul knew exactly what they had been taught because the Apostle Paul spent so much time there teaching them. He spent two years in the school, the, the hollow terrainus, teaching them. And it was true then, as it is true today, that the apostolic teaching is the standard, is the measure of true doctrine that must be maintained and upheld in the church. That's the standard. And each one of us have a part to play and responsibility in seeing that it is maintained and upheld in the church. Now, we mentioned it last week, and we'll see it when we get to chapter 3, that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, that the church is to hold up the truth to the world. And if that's the case, then it only makes sense that the truth of God's word must be maintained and upheld in the church itself. And we see how vital and important that that is. So Timothy is to put a stop to those contrary teachings. And all this, again, shows us that doctrine matters. Teaching matters. What we believe about the gospel, what we believe about God the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, what we believe about the church, what we believe about the scriptures, and on and on we can go, all of that matters. Where there is no gospel preach, where the, God of word, the, the word of God is not taught, there is no church there. Even if what's there claims to be a church, it's not. Doctrine, teaching, is so vital to the life of the church. It's so vital to the life of of each one of our individual Christian lives. We cannot just lay it aside. As we go through this, we're going to see what what is included here in uh, these different or other teachings that the false teachers were propagating. Uh, some argue that there was a, a kind of pre-Gnostic idea that was uh, in their teaching, and that very well may be true. But certainly, one thing that we can say is for certain and is true is that in this teaching, there was an influence of, of uh, Judaistic thought that was in here. And this teaching will be developed as we go along and, and get into chapter 4 as well. But here in chapter 1, verse 4, Uh, we see that this teaching includes myths, uh, fables, fairy tales. 
And what exactly the nature of that all is, we're not exactly sure, although uh, we're going to see that, I think, there's clues in the text that, uh, that includes these genealogies that Paul mentions next. But in any case, we see that when we get away from Scripture, uh, when we add to Scripture, or when we take it out of context, where that leads us is fairy tale land. Uh, where that leads us is man's traditions. And it's, it's, it leads us to a place of man's ideologies that tell a different story, a, a false story, a fairy tale. So we see, as Paul talks about these myths, he, he then refers to these endless genealogies. Again, like I said, there, there are some clues, con, contextual clues, that would lead us to understand that these endless genealogies is the content of these myths. And so it'd be something like uh, what we see often in, in some of the uh, apocryphal books, where they, they take the genealogies in the Old Testament, and they'll, they'll, they'll take these obscure names that are found there, uh, these names that, that are only there, and we don't know anything else about this person than the, other than their name is in this genealogy. And, and they'll concoct and build these stories about this person, speculating on, on what kind of person they are and, and how they lived and, and what great things they did and how God used them. And, and so this is the basis, this idea is the basis of, of their teaching. And these go beyond any historical foundation and, and certainly go beyond the revelation of Scripture. And we see that these are endless genealogies because one could just go on and on, uh, endlessly seemingly, to proliferate their words on, on such details of the storytelling and, and all that these minor names in the, the Old Testament genealogies, who these people are and what they did. And as they say all of these things, in the end, they really end up saying nothing. It's just empty. Matter of fact, Paul says all they really end up doing is promoting speculations. Or maybe a better way to say it is promoting aimless arguing. Uh, these myths and, and endless genealogies just cause controversy. This just cause division. And so Paul wants them to stay away from that in the church. Now, does that mean then we always stay away from controversy? Well, no. But to what end? What's the point? Uh, these stories start off with no point to begin with. And so what could be possibly the point of, of any of the controversy, any of the arguments that they cause? <laughs> there can't be any. It's useless. It just promotes aimless arguing. And so Timothy was to command certain ones to stop devoting themselves, stop following, stop focusing on, stop giving heed to and becoming preoccupied with these myths and endless genealogies, which promote aimless arguing rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so we see here they got way off course. Uh, they've, they're teaching on things that are outside of Scripture, things that are false and made up, and it's taken them off course where they should be focusing on one thing, but they're focusing on just what promotes aimless controversy instead of focusing on what promotes the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
And the word stewardship here, it's translated as stewardship because it can refer to uh, responsibility given to one to manage something that belongs to somebody else, uh, like a household slave that's given to, to have management over, oversight over their master's house. So they have a stewardship, they have a responsibility for someone else's things. Uh, but this word can also refer to a plan or an outworking, an ordering of something. And as we see that this stewardship is of God or from God, uh, it would seem, and within the context, that it's better to look at this as the plan or the outworking of salvation. Salvation, that is, by faith. God's plan of salvation is not accomplished by speculations by traditions that, that go beyond the revealed, written word of God. But instead, it is by faith. And we see that it's not only these myths and endless genealogies that they were teaching, but as you keep going here, we see that they also had a, a misunderstanding of the law, and they, they taught uh, about the law wrongly. in error. And all of their teaching then results in the teachings of man's own efforts, man's self-righteousness, in which man obtains salvation by his own works. And this is all the more clear as we'll keep going, and as, as Ken will address next week, uh, the following verses from this passage that we're in. You accomplishing any aspect of your salvation by anything you do, anything that you need to add to Christ's work, all of that is not the gospel. No one will be saved by their own doing or by anything on their part that's, that becomes part of the formula. It's by grace alone that anyone will be saved. No act, no decision, no ritual, no baptism. No work of the law will justify anyone before the holy God. But only the work of Jesus Christ will save you. That work of Christ that God applies by faith. And so we, we need to see how important this is and what's all at risk. If we are unwilling to stand firmly on the word of God, if we are shaky when it comes to doctrine and the importance of it. Brothers and sisters, we must be so certain of the truth of God's word. We must be so unmoved, having been so convicted that we would rather die than to give an inch to anything that is contrary to sound teaching, anything that is contrary to biblical truth, anything that is contrary to the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the truth is where we must firmly stand. But standing there may cause some to walk away and leave. Standing there may cause division. Standing there may not be so attractive. So what really then is the end result of standing there? Why is it so important? Well, look at what Paul says. Look at verse 5 here with me. 
Paul told Timothy, the aim of our charge or, or the aim of our command is love. The goal of what Paul commanded Timothy and then to the, uh, what Timothy was to turn around and command the false teachers in the church, the goal was love. What was the motivation? What would be the end result of leaving Timothy there behind in Ephesus and telling him to command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine? What would be the end result of Timothy fulfilling that command? And so commanding those false teachers to stop. The goal, the end of it, the, the aim of it was love. Well, why? Well, because as, as was made clear when we were going through Second Peter, that false teaching is destructive. And the destination of the false teacher and all of those who follow them are the same. Eternal damnation. So commanding Timothy to do this resulted in Timothy acting in love. But also Timothy's command results in love. To urge the false teachers for their sake and for the sake of their followers to stop teaching what was false would then result in the promotion of what is true. And so the true gospel, and the true gospel results in one's life being lived in love for God and love for others. Those who hear the true gospel, who truly respond in repentance and faith, are people whose lives are growing in and are marked by love. When we come under grace, we're no under, longer under the, the Mosaic law, we're, we're under the law of Christ, which is love. Jesus said that all the law and the prophets, in other words, the entire Old Testament, hangs on these two commands. Love God and love others. Paul in Romans says that the law is summed up in this, love. And if we have truly come to know Jesus Christ, if we are truly trusting in him alone, uh, then we are no longer who we used to be. But our hearts are changed, and we are being transformed from the inside out, that we would be a people of love, because we have come to know the God of love. Right? What do we read in, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you love, that shows that you have been born of God. You've been born again. You're not who you used to be. And it shows you know God. Uh, that verse actually goes on with a warning. And anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And we have to understand this love too, right? What is this love? It's not just a, a warm, fuzzy sentiment that I feel. And love isn't just what other people do that make me feel good. Uh, but love is defined by God's word, right? Again, Paul says in Romans, love is, is the summation of the law. And so when we hear, or if even ourselves say something like, you know, to love your neighbor, you have to dot, 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 
something we've heard a lot the last two years, we need to think and consider, is that really what God's word says love is? Or are we adding to God's law when we say such things? That's something to consider. We have to think, how does God's word define love? The gospel, true doctrine, in true biblical love, is something that is growing and being manifested in the believer's life. And Paul says here that love comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Which all of those things, as others have pointed out, are all internal things. Love does not come from the external. It comes from being transformed from the inside out. As it talks about the heart here, uh, that's referring to the inner person, the seat of one's emotions, desire, intellect, and will. And therefore, it's often used to represent the person as a whole. And a pure heart is one that has been cleansed from impurity. And so is pure with not a mix, but a singular purpose and devotion to God. And that takes a heart change. None of us have a pure heart naturally. We all have a mix of devotions. And very often the the most prominent devotion is the one to ourselves. We we worship ourselves very well. (laughs) We, We know how to do that. But it takes the change that only the gospel brings, that we would have a singular devotion to God. So this is the result of true saving faith by which we walk and are continually growing in holiness, having been transformed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says that love comes from a good conscience. The conscience is the the knowledge of right and wrong. And by it, we judge our actions and our motives, etc. It's the place of rationale in, in, in a person's mind. And we've all done things that were wrong, knowing they were wrong at the time that we did them. And so we all know what it is to be weighed down by a guilty conscience. And if we were to continue with a guilty conscience, walking in sin, doing the things we knew we know that are wrong, then that sin that we continue in is going to sear our conscience. And our conscience will be broken. And so our conscience is not the the ultimate standard of right and wrong. No, God's word is. But when we have a pure heart, because we have been cleansed, so too our guilty conscience is cleansed by Christ in the washing of the Holy Spirit. And we are free then to live devoted to the Lord and to walk in obedience to his word. And then we will follow his commands. And so love for God and love for others will come from a good, or you could say a clear, conscience. But a pure heart and a good or clear conscience must also be with a sincere faith, which refers to a faith without hypocrisy. One is not cleansed in the power of the gospel. Uh, One is not made right with a a clear conscience when one only has a supposed faith. 
a faith that is with pretense to, to cover up wicked motives or, or with the intention of continuing on in one's sin. But sincere trust and dependency in the Lord, which then means submission to the Lord. When we trust in Christ, we are washed, we are justified, and we are being transformed from the inside out with a pure heart and a good conscience, from which comes love for God and love for others. as opposed to what we used to be. In our sin, we, we hate God. We're enemies of God. And we do not love others as we should. But now we've been changed with a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. And so now our lives are not all about trying to be a good person. I'm, I'm a good person, right? That's, that's, that's the claim of, of most men, right? Right? That's what the proverb says. Most men will declare their own goodness in their hearts. And to be a good person, trying to keep all these external commands, to change our behavior all the while, our heart remains the same. Our hearts remain unchanged. And so we have to understand we're not saved, we're not justified, we're not made right, we're not good before God by keeping the external commands. Uh, but even after we come to Christ and are justified and made right before him by faith, we are then not sanctified either by keeping those external commands. So instead of striving after the external, the Mosaic law, instead we, we live from the transformed life, the internal transformation, doing what we do because now we love God. And in loving God, we love others. And his law shows us what love is. And love is from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And we see in verse 6, it says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, say swerving from what? Well, swerving from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And the word for swerving here is the word that literally means to miss. Uh, they missed the mark. They missed the target. They were never truly converted, so turning to myths and endless genealogies and, and a misuse of the law, they show that they have not been transformed. Their teaching does not transform and, and, and does not lead to true biblically defined love. You know, that's one way, too, that you can identify false teaching as well. That it is not striving for love for God, it's striving for something other than. It doesn't bring about the change of a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. And so instead of the change that the gospel brings, the false teachers have wandered away into vain discussion, saying things that maybe tickle the ears, but in the end, cause no one to love God. And so for the false teacher who has wandered from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith, uh, they may talk about loving God. Uh, they may mix some truth in, yeah, as we discussed last week, is often the case, and, and just makes a false teacher all the more deceitful and all the more dangerous. Because their true motive is not for love towards God. It's not loving others. Their true motive is for what they want. 
And what do they want? Well, specifically here we see in verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law. They want the position of authority and prestige, the kind of prestige that rabbis and teachers had of those days. They wanted the influence. They wanted to have a say in the church. Whether or not God gave them to have that say, that, that doesn't matter. They want it. And saying that they want to be teachers of the law refers to the Old Testament. But again, they don't understand it. Uh, sure, they might be able to say this is what it means, but they don't have the understanding of why that matters. They're unconverted. They're, they're void of the Spirit, and so they, they do not have the Spirit's illumination. They're ignorant of the things that they talk about. That doesn't stop them from talking. Matter of fact, what they lack in knowledge and understanding, they make up for in sounding confident. You know, you can fool a lot of people into thinking you're saying something when you're really saying nothing when you say that nothing confidently. And so there are so many who are able to, to worm their way into the church. So many who don't really study God's word. They don't really have a, a care and love for people. They don't really desire to disciple others and see them grow in the truth and knowledge of the word. But instead, they just want a place of prominence for themselves. You know, there's some sort of prideful indulgence that, that comes from standing up in front of people and, and prolificating. For some reason, they feel that they should lead and, and shape the church into what they desire it to be as opposed to aiming for God's desire for his church. And it can all come in for many different motivations and reasons, wanting to look good, and, and again, on and on we can go. But instead of being students of the word, instead of working uh, in their study, best to know, then come out and they go to teach and saying, this is what God's word says. Uh, they would rather just perform. And my friends, no one, no one should step before you and teach who does not teach from conviction. They should not teach from the line that, that is towed by their association or their preferences or what they think will be attractive, but from conviction that flows from the word of God. And so again, as we think of having a plurality of, of elders here, who is given to be leaders here at North Valley? Who is given to, to stand before you and, and teach? Whoever it is, and whoever does teach here already, and, and even not just standing here in the pulpit or in the adult Sunday school, but all of us who teach, all the Sunday school teachers and children's church, and all of us together, not one of us should teach if we're not teaching from the fear of the Lord. Because we should recognize that we're going to be held accountable for our teaching. Right? That's why we read in, in James chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
<laughs> there should be fear there. I also think that Hebrews 13, verse 17 applies. Because it's talking about those who keep watch over your souls. And one of the ways the elders, the pastors, do that is through teaching. Uh, teaching, I don't think, is the only application there, but I, th- I think it's one of them. They do that through teaching. And so what do we read there in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And so in every way that the leadership watches over your souls, including teaching, they will have to give an account for before Christ. And so not everyone should teach. But those who are given to preaching and teaching must do so out of the fear of God. Heaven forbid it that someone who lacks understanding and doesn't know what they're talking about would stand up before you, even if they put on a good show, even if they make it sound good. What matters is true doctrine and the truth that they preach from God's word. Now, as we talk about this, you may be asking, Scott, uh, I mean, we, we did just finish Second Peter, right? Which, which lays heavy on false teaching. Matter of fact, that we should think, really, as we look through the New Testament, most every New Testament epistle uh, touches on false teaching. Think about Colossians, and think about uh, Galatians, and Jude, and James, and, and we can go on. Most every letter in the New Testament hits on false teaching. And so you say, though, we just discussed this, and we discussed the importance of, of true doctrine. Why then are we going through this now, going through 1 Timothy, and hitting so hard on it again? Well, one, we discussed all of the reasons that we're going through First and Second Timothy last week, right? And, and that includes uh, discussing elders and church polity, and includes how what we profess to believe must affect our conduct and our behavior, our practice in the church. But as we think about false teaching, we should consider this. We discussed last week that Paul warned the elders in the church in Ephesus of wolves that would not spare the flock and that would rise up among their own numbers. He did that uh, when he was on his way to Jerusalem, where the Spirit had made it clear he would, at the very least, face imprisonment, and maybe more. He didn't know. And so uh, he didn't know if he'd ever see the Ephesian elders again, so he met with them on the, Isle of, uh, on the island near Ephesus, and he gave this farewell address in which he warned them of false teachers. And so from there, he goes on to Jerusalem. He does get arrested. He does get put in prison. And and we just talked this morning about that as we began a study in Acts uh, in Sunday school. And that Acts leaves off with Paul there still sitting in prison. And so if that was about, in the, the time period we gave, around 62 A.D., and then, too, as we, in our introduction last, we talked about when Paul was released and started his, his missionary journey. That was probably about 62 AD. And, and so, as he returns then to Ephesus, after before he was arrested, he warned them of false teachers. 
and then he's imprisoned, and so maybe, maybe a year later, maybe not even that, maybe a little more. But in any case, a very short period of time, we see that he returns then to Ephesus to find it's consumed with false teaching. And then we should consider this, that about 30 years after this, after he has returned to, to see Ephesus full of false teaching, we read the words of Jesus to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. We begin there in chapter 2, and we see Jesus uh, is commending them for their works and for their toil, uh, their patient endurance, bearing with evil men and, and even having put false apostles to the test. And they would be bearing up for the name of Christ without growing weary. But then as we come to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And what's he saying there? Uh, the idea of removing your lampstand from its place is the idea of them no longer being a church. That he was going to bring his judgment unless they repented. And so as we look at this, we should understand that things can easily change. And it could take years, sure, but could also happen very quickly. Uh, the threat of false teaching is often subtle. It's often accompanied with a, a whimsomeness, a winsomeness, and accompanied with a great personality. I don't know about you, but I, I've read a lot and heard different people talk about Joel Osteen and just how he's such a nice guy, how nice he really is. He's still a wolf. He's still a false teacher. And so again, it can be accompanied with a great personality, and as we said, with, with truth mixed in to dilute the blatantness of the lie. And we can think, Scott, though, uh, I mean, that, that can't really happen here, right? right? There's been no problems here, and, and sure, that's true. But even as I look out at you now, and I see all the faces I think about how much we've changed as a church with so many new faces here in front of me since I first started here less than five and a half years ago. There's been a lot of change here. Now, don't get me wrong. I, th I think it's been great. Uh, I, I repeat over again to, to those I talk to how grateful I am for where the church is at. But my point is how fast change can happen. Because five and a half years, relatively speaking, is pretty fast. And so for a church who is growing and a church to, to be growing in the, the word of God and, and their walk with Christ, we must be grounded in sound doctrine and grounded so we will not be susceptible to error. And if we think that we could never be susceptible to a wolf coming in and at the very least trying to subtly bring about a change, then, then really we're fooling ourselves. So we must be grounded in the truth and prepared when the wolf in sheep's clothing arrives. We must always take doctrine seriously. 
and keep the warnings before us and be students of God's word. And in knowing the truth of God's word, we'll be able to identify the counterfeit when we hear it. And and listen, I'm convinced with this that I can honestly say my aim here is love. And as we endeavor to grow in knowing the truth, and, and the truth then will produce love for God and love for one another in us and among us. And therefore, then, we will be all the stronger as a body, a body who is growing in and marked by love. And so in all of this, we should see the importance of doctrine, the importance of uh, of warding off the wolves, the importance of being in the Word of God ourselves and growing in the Word of God, knowing the Word of God, obeying the Word of God. And seeing the word of God and true doctrine then produce love in us. The aim of it all is love. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visit nvbc.com.